the people out there made it clear they strongly support the American Rescue Plan. This historic legislation is about rebuilding the backbone of this country and giving people in this nation, working people, middle-class folks, uh, people who built the country a fighting chance. Oh, there's an idea. Give working-class people a fighting chance? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Impeach! I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Hey, yep! From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV. Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk an honor to be on all of those affiliates blank, uh, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. And it is a big day in a lot of ways here. Let's start here. Marking a year of loss and disruption, President Joe Biden on Thursday signed into law the sweeping and wildly progressive $1.9 trillion relief package to help the U.S. defeat the coronavirus and help spark the economy back to health. The signing came hours before Biden was set to deliver his first primetime address since taking office. This historic legislation, he said, is about rebuilding the backbone of this country Uh, as he signed that bill in the Oval Office. He had originally planned to sign the bill on Friday, but it arrived at the White House more quickly than anticipated. And White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain said we want to move as fast as possible. We will hold our celebration of the signing on Friday as planned with congressional leaders, presumably That will only be Democratic congressional leaders since no Republicans in either chamber voted in favor of the bill. 
despite some of them going on to Twitter on Wednesday to sing its praises. Of course they did. As if they had voted in favor of it. So don't be fooled. Zero, zero Republicans voted for what is now not just a stimulus bill, but a landmark recovery, relief, and stimulus bill that is structured wildly differently from anything before it in modern times, pumping a huge amount of money where it's actually needed including mostly to the poor and the working class who have struggled the most over the past year, not to mention the past, oh, I don't know, four decades or so. The people who actually build and make the country run. This uh, nearly $2 trillion package uh, sees most of its funds go to the poor and the working class. And yes, it received zero votes from Republicans. That by way of contrast with the Republican tax cuts from 2017 that cost the same nearly $2 trillion, with 65% of the benefits from that bill going to the wealthiest, the top 1% of the nation. And that $2 trillion bill was voted for by every Republican in both houses, which I hope gives you an unvarnished, nonpartisan clear picture of the priorities of each of the two major parties. Money, child support, health care expansion, unemployment payments meant to help those most in, in need in the country, such as the middle class and the working poor. That was opposed by every single Republican. Money and long-term tax cuts for the wealthy and for corporations at a time when profits for those same people were never higher uh, before the bill was passed, was supported at the time in those tax cuts by every single Republican. Got that? And that is not a partisan statement. This is just an historical fact that I want to point out because I want you to keep in keep this in mind and share it with your friends and family when the next elections come around in less than two years and you don't have to be a partisan to do so to share these actual facts of who voted for what and who voted against what. Now, in fact, while only time will tell, uh, what I've come to learn about Joe Biden and the Democrats' $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan is that it is so radically different from how we have operated in recent decades with these sorts of bills as far as how the benefits are distributed to the American people, that we may look back on this day. And I know I'm going out on a limb here, Desi Doyen. Mm, yeah. I'm making another prediction, but I think we may look back on this day and see this day as the official end of the Reagan era. Really? I, I don't know, but, you know, that's how different this, uh, I believe anyway, that this package is. And by the way, it's just one of the reasons that, yes, every Republican voted against it. If Democrats can keep this up, and of course that remains a big if, they are Democrats after all. And it does rely on voters. Uh, this could be a, a sea change, really, in the country for a generation of Americans like myself, by the way, who were largely brought up uh, in, in a nation under the notion that the, the federal government does next to nothing other than make life easier for rich people and for corporations. That has pretty much been uh, what I have seen for the bulk of my life, certainly the bulk of my adult life. And now, if that begins to change, if people across the country, yes, including Republicans, 
Yes, including Trump Republicans, if they start to see, well, $1,400 checks, as they will, and they start seeing monthly checks for children up to $3,600 annually for each child, when they continue to see an extra $300 on top of their state unemployment checks, when they realize that their monthly insurance premiums, health insurance premiums, could be going down in some cases to zero, all thanks to this bill, when they begin to see an influx of cash to their children's schools to make improvements, to make them easier to reopen safely, well, it is going to be very hard for Republicans to continue their claims that, oh, Democrats are terrible. These guys are horrible, radical. You hate them. They're socialists. All of that socialism needs to stop. That American parents, really, in truth, they don't want that $300 or $600 or $900 monthly child tax credit checks coming into their houses anymore. They just don't want that. Good luck with that argument, Republicans. Good luck telling your constituents in 2022 why all of this must be stopped immediately and why their insurance premiums need to go up before the next midterm elections. I mean, to me, this seems like an astounding act of political malpractice, in fact, by the Republicans. But, you know, I'm not a political insider. Certainly, I'm not a Republican political insider, so I certainly can't even begin to guess what they may be thinking with what seems an historic act of political miscalculation on their parts. Again, time will tell, but good luck telling 76% of the nation, which supports this bill right now, including 60% of Republican voters, good luck telling them why you voted against it and how it is that you want to end the improvements that this measure, the American Rescue Plan, makes in the lives of the vast majority of the country, including, yes, Republican voters. Our, uh, our friend and financial investigative journalist David Dayen, executive editor over at The American Prospect, describes the American Rescue Plan today as, quote, maybe the largest pure economic up uplift bill in U.S. history. Mm. One of the biggest complaints with the bill from the likes of former Bill Clinton economic advisor Larry Summers, he notes, was particularly incoherent. Uh, he says that uh, Summers didn't mind a lot of spending. It's just that it should be channeled to public investment, not just giving away a bunch of money. Dan says this is critically wrong on a, on a number of levels, but the biggest is that the ARP, the American Rescue Plan, does, in fact, bring lasting public investment, which makes it a huge one-year investment bill as well as everything else. Uh, much of these investments uh, prevent deterioration, but the, he says a smaller hole to drag out of uh, will be created in the future, and it certainly helps. Some of the uh, these investments will create pockets of durability that will be remembered as part of the ARP. That's especially true, he notes, if key investments are eventually made permanent. He goes on to cite just some of those investments in this sweeping bill that have not yet received as much attention, for example, as the one-time $1,400 individual checks, which are coming soon. He says, let's start with the health insurance, uh, the health infrastructure investments. 
He says there's a section on providing medical supplies and personnel for rural health care providers, something that will be difficult to dislodge post-pandemic. He says there's $7.6 billion for state and local health department workers and another $7.6 billion for community health centers, which provide basic care in poor communities. For context, he notes Bernie Sanders got $11 billion for community health centers in the Affordable Care Act. But that $11 billion was to be spent over five years. Nonetheless, it made a significant difference. This bill, by contrast, this is $7.6 billion in investments in one single year. Wow. Then there's the school funding, $128 billion that's dedicated to K-12, through which will deliver more to the poorest schools, up to $8,000 per student in low-income districts like Cleveland. $8,000 more per student, uh, meaning that money can be used to make long-term investments in schools like uh, improving ventilation, which can serve as both pandemic preparedness and better learning environments. These have proven to make a difference in the classroom, he notes. The $39 billion in child care grants. Can, and that's separate, by the way, from the uh, from the three hundred dollar monthly checks that uh, folks will be getting per child. Thirty nine billion dollars in child care grants can rebuild care infrastructure, which is desperately needed. Thought about as a one year investment. It's absolutely enormous. Thirty nine billion dollars. There's also seven billion dollars emergency connectivity fund for remote learning, which he says comes a bit late, but can help to provide lasting broadband infrastructure. There's also 30 more than 30 billion for public transit, which will go toward arresting the sector wide crisis for low pandemic ridership on public transit which he says easily could have spiraled into permanent cutbacks to those public transit systems. This will uh, sustain transit budgets until 2023 in some areas. And I believe, Desi Doyen, uh, you will discuss that a bit more, uh, another aspect of the ARP in your Green News report a little bit later today. All of this is on top of the $350 billion investment in state and local governments, which, thanks to a last-minute change, can go towards service improvements in things like water and sewage and broadband, $350 billion. That's some real money. Some of this money will pour into uh, lasting investments and upgrades in key systems around the country. Remember how, you know, we've... Uh, You know, I I remember going to uh, uh, national parks and state parks and stuff and seeing stuff that was built after the Depression or during the Depression. In a uh, jobs program. Yeah. We could be looking at investments like that, that decades down the road, we're looking back at the ARP and the infrastructure improvements that it has made. Uh, similarly, similarly, he notes the $31 billion for uh, for tribal governments, the largest investment in those communities in a very long time. That will include lasting infrastructure, some of it earmarked for housing. And when you have legislation that for one year would reduce poverty from almost 14 percent down to uh, about 9 percent and cut child poverty by more than half. He notes you are freeing people from many day to day stresses and putting them in position to succeed. 
This is the largest anti-poverty bill in decades. So Republicans, good luck selling that, all of that, as a bad thing to your rank-and-file non-corporate constituents. Remember to tell them why you opposed helping to lift them out of poverty. When you have airline workers, Dan notes, being told uh, to tear up their furlough notices, which American Airlines CEO, uh, right after the bill, received final passage in Congress on Wednesday. He went out on a video, told some 13,000 employees uh, who had previously received furlough notices that they should just tear them up right now, that they are not going anywhere. 13,000. And when you have an, an economic recovery time that is now, thanks to this bill, expected to be twice as fast as had previously been projected, with economic growth at the fastest level since the Korean War also projected, that likely means better bargaining power for labor and more opportunity for rising wages to the middle class. These are investments, Dan notes, that allow people to contribute and succeed. So you see why it is so different from everything that we have seen over the past uh, 40 years since Ronald Reagan? It is no wonder, says Dan, uh, that Republicans who voted against the ARP en masse are already trying to take credit for it. And I hope you will stop them from doing so whenever you see them doing so. Uh, not all of these above-mentioned items, he says, will leave permanent investments in place. In fact, they will need to be fought for to ensure that this isn't just a blip. But as he notes, this is the beginning of a second war on poverty, not the end. What Democrats do next and whether this bill sets up for a midterm victory will end up telling that story. But there could be as much as $100 billion in investments here, if not $200 billion. So, you know, that's a lot of money. That is not chump change. That is all over, you know, just one year. I have uh, I've hailed the dawn of a new progressive era in this country before <laughs> yes. on this show. Uh, it was near the end of the Obama administration. That prediction, however, did not foresee the bump in the road that would become the four hellish years of the uh, Trump aberration. And in fact, there are still many hurdles that need reforming, uh, including the filibuster. But really, uh, we may not know it for 10 or 20 years, but really this could be a sea change moment, a paradigm shift in how America thinks of itself and how Americans think of its own government. Am I getting out ahead of myself, Des? You might be, but I think the important point is that it is happening now and it is the first major investment in the people of America in, what, 40 years? And it is fragile. So, yes, it's important, it's fantastic, it's wonderful, it's fragile and must be fought for uh, tooth and nail. Time will tell. We will see. But, I, you know, I just want folks to not underestimate the importance of this particular bill at this yes. particular moment. It is not just another same old, same old, you know, same old relief and stimulus effort with most of the funds geared to the wealthiest, as has been the case for decades, for, you know, the past decade or four. This is different. And progressives ought to be singing its praises, not to mention Democrats themselves as a party, especially since Republicans, for some reason, gave them this gift of not one single vote in its favor. 
Well, signing the bill on Thursday, President Biden said he planned to talk about, uh, quote, what we have been through as a nation over this past year and more importantly about what comes next. He added there is light at the end of this dark tunnel of the past year. There is real reason for hope, he said. I suspect we'll discuss what he has to say uh, in his primetime address on our next broadcast. But in the meantime, the signing of the American Rescue Plan does come one year to the day after the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus to be a pandemic around the world. One year to the day after I declared on this show... Uh, much to the shock and surprise of Desi Doyen, I think, who's who's already, uh, you know, very white face, sort of <laughs> very pale, turned even whiter uh, that day uh, when I declared. And because I didn't know we were going to talk about it, it just it was based on some breaking news. And I declared that day one year ago today that America is shutting down at a time that it sort of seemed inconceivable. Because we were so young and innocent then. Here we are one year ago at that moment when it happened. The uh, NCAA, which had announced yesterday that it would play its men's and women's March Madness tournament games without crowds in the arenas, has now canceled both tournaments entirely. And about an hour or so, uh, or so ago, Disneyland has announced that they are also closing but they will continue to pay park employees, most of whom are union members. So thank you, unions. Yep. But the message here, um, America is shutting down, it seems to me. We are just shutting down. I don't know if we've ever done anything like this in, in the country. At I least, don't think uh, anything like this has occurred in modern history, in U.S. history. And it's not necessarily all of America that will be shutting down. But we do need to spread the word to folks to think through what you might need to do, how you might need to prepare, what things you might need to get ready in case your area does end up getting shut down from uh, small temporary shutdowns to some larger, broader shutdowns, sort of like the country of Italy is experiencing right now, where everything is shut down but grocery stores and pharmacies. So there are some things to think through on that, and the important thing to do is not panic, but to reach out to your neighbors, don't touch them, wash your <laughs> hands first. Just reach out and wave. Wave don't, at them, yeah, don't. talk to them, make yeah. sure, you know, talk to the people that you know to uh, to sort of uh, get your community ready, mentally prepared for this potential eventuality. It's not guaranteed, I don't think it's it potential. Happen. I don't think it's an eventuality. I think it is happening now at an alarming rate, an alarming speed. I don't want, I'm not uh, suggesting that people should panic, but things are, yes, shutting down. Yeah. That was one year ago today, Des. Yeah, we were so much younger then. And it was uh, it was all of America, by <laughs> yes, the way. Yes, it was. Yes. Uh, I was not ready to accept that. No. Uh, I don't, none of us were. None yeah. of us were. Uh, and it's, uh, America and the world did shut down, uh, sort of. And one year later, more than two and a half million have now been killed by the coronavirus, including well over half a million and counting still here in the U.S., which has just about 5% of the world's population, but well over a quarter of the world's deaths. Thanks to the unparalleled failure by the Trump administration to handle the worst pandemic in a century at a time when our nation just happened to have in place the worst conceivable person in charge. 
America's former presidents um, joined in an ad campaign to encourage Americans to get the COVID-19 vaccine today. On Wednesday, the Ad Council released two ads featuring the former presidents urging people to roll up your sleeve and do your part to end the pandemic by getting vaccinated. See if you notice anything missing from this ad. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. So yeah, uh, notice anything missing there, Des? <laughs> Donald Trump, the only thankfully, thankfully, yes, uh, only living ex-president who did not participate in that campaign. He did issue an obnoxious statement that I am not going to read an obnoxious racist statement, actually talking about covid-19 and then referring to it as the China virus because, oh, oh, that's what covid-19 is. I had no idea. Thanks for clarifying that, Mr. President. (laughs) Anyway, little wonder he did not want to show his face with America's other presidents in calling for Americans to get vaccinated as quickly as they possibly can, because it would be just another reminder of what a deadly failure that that man was as president at a moment when the nation was at its most vulnerable uh, to, you know, a guy who was an incompetent, unqualified, dangerous demagogue. Pretending to be our commander in chief. Uh, That's a nightmare that I, I, I hope we figure out how to move through as quickly as possible today. However, hopefully America got a kickstart in that direction with the uh, American rescue bill. Time will tell. One more thought before we get to a break. Uh, Today is also the 10 year anniversary of the triple disasters that devastated Japan when a 9.0 earthquake, its largest in recorded history, struck Japan Uh, leading to a tsunami that killed nearly 16,000 people, which at the time seemed inconceivably huge, but... Now we know. Well, it almost feels kind of quaint by way of comparison to the 550,000... In the U.S. alone. ...that have died, uh, yeah, in this country over the past year. And, of course, it also unleashed a third disaster at that same moment at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant... Uh, which, uh, as Desi Doyen uh, will also discuss in our GNR today, uh, that remains an ongoing disaster. That was remarkable that it was 10 years ago, because it both seems like yesterday and forever ago at the same time. I do recall covering that earthquake and tsunami and nuclear disaster live as it happened 
at bradblog.com. And then, of course, later on the show, because it happened pretty late on the West Coast here, I was up. Most of the folks on the East Coast were already down for the night. So we were on it pretty early as it happened. You could see it on TV as yeah. the helicopters in Japan were flying during the day, recording it as it happened. As the tsunami came in and then later as the explosions and meltdowns happened at the nuclear plant, we ended up staying on that story for weeks and even months at the time. So it is both a hopeful day and a somber day here at the broadcast, but I remain mighty thankful to those of you who have been with us throughout so much of it and uh, have helped us continue to cover things that matter, both at the Brad blog and over your public airwaves. Let's take a quick break here for a breather, and we will uh, lighten things up somehow a bit. Somehow after the break, I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Everything about this bill is rotten to the core. This is a bill as if written in hell by the devil himself. <laughs> Could it be Satan? <laughs> Welcome back <laughs> to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, man, uh, the, the Washington Post uh, catches up today on some of the more than 200 voter suppression bills that have been filed by Republican lawmakers that have been moving through legislatures in more than 40 states today. Uh, we've been covering some of those over the past week or two, such as the bill now signed into law by Iowa's Republican governor that will radically shorten the early voting period and polling hours on Election Day up in the uh, up in Iowa uh, under the phony claim that it is somehow needed to prevent fraud and to shore up confidence in their elections despite no evidence whatsoever of fraud in Iowa's voting system uh, or the more than dozen bills that now are moving through the Georgia State House and Senate right right now to radically restrict access to mail-in voting in the Peach State, which uh, Georgia Republicans had themselves created. They created the mail-in voting law about 15 years ago for no-excuse absentee voting, only to try and roll back no-excuse absentee voting. Now that Democrats uh, won the presidential election and a couple of Senate races uh, in uh, last year and, and Senate races this year. So... Um, Washington Post covered that today, and the paper's analysis of all of these bills details what they describe as, quote, the GOP's national push to enact hundreds of new election restrictions could strain every available method of voting for tens of millions of Americans, potentially amounting to the most sweeping contraction of ballot access in the United States since the end of Reconstruction when southern states curtailed the voting rights of formerly enslaved black men. 
The uh, paper quotes Democratic election law attorney Mark Elias, who warns, quote, long lines are going to be the story of 2022 unless something is done. He notes he's preparing for a busy year of litigation if these laws are enacted. He has already filed suit in Iowa. Uh, he filed there the very next day after Governor Kim Reynolds signed the uh, the bill to make it harder for Iowans to vote. And then Elias goes on to add a point that I have long argued on this show and elsewhere when he says, quote, we have to recognize early on in this election cycle that this is now the defining feature of the Republican Party in competitive states and uncompetitive states, in red states and blue states. They don't run on economic issues or even social issues. They run on shrinking the vote. And he's right. That is it. That is it. Voter suppression is, by and large, the only actually governing value that Republicans have left at this point. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's pathetic in and of itself. By the way, that doesn't say anything particularly good about Democrats. I'm just trying to note that this is all the Republicans at this point tend to believe in. That and figuring out how to give more money to corporations and rich people. Oh, and owning the libs. There's that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's just for fun. That's what they do in their <laughs> free time, uh, which basically is all the time when they are not figuring out how to suppress the vote. In Congress, Democrats, meanwhile, are attempting to adopt a sweeping set of election reforms to help protect the right to vote, the right to vote that Republicans are trying to take away. They're trying to protect the right for everyone, every every voter of all parties in both their H.R. 1 for the People Act and the H.R. 4 John Lewis Voting Rights Restoration Act. Uh, now, H.R. 1 has already been passed in the House Again, without one single Republican vote, just like the ARP, the American Rescue Plan. But now uh, that bill, which was passed by the House, faces hurdles of a Republican filibuster in the U.S. Senate, where it will likely go nowhere unless or until West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin can somehow be convinced to allow the filibuster to be reformed in some manner or another. But no, no. Republicans not only have no governing philosophy beyond, beyond restricting certain Americans' rights to vote, uh, they are willing to say anything or do anything to undermine those who are protecting our elections and the right to vote. Here's what Utah Republican Senator Mike Lee had to say about protecting the right of every American to vote in H.R. 1, the For the People Act, on Fox News this week. Everything about this bill is rotten to the core. This is a bill as if written in hell by the devil himself. So written in hell by the devil himself? <laughs> Drama queen much? Uh, Mike Lee? Good God. I, the, so the irony here is that while Republicans are claiming that vote suppression is necessary to prevent non-existent fraud and that and that laws meant to prevent vote suppression is somehow written by the devil himself. As all of that's going on, their own false idol golden calf, Donald Trump, 
could be in very serious legal jeopardy right now for trying, in fact, to defraud the election in the state of Georgia. And yes, this seems to be getting serious. You will recall the hour-long phone call that Trump made to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, which he or, or someone in, in Raffensperger's office was smart enough to record Uh, I think it was on January 3, just days before the uh, Trump-incited attack on the U.S. Capitol while Congress was confirming Joe Biden's final Electoral College victory on January 6. Uh, In that call, we heard uh, Trump cajoling and threatening the Republican Secretary of State to, quote, find about 12,000 votes to flip the state's election from Biden to Trump and telling Raffensperger that he could be in legal trouble if he did not somehow do that. So that is now being investigated as a criminal matter by the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, a Democrat. Fulton County is uh, Atlanta. It's being investigated as a violation of state law, which makes it a felony to coerce an election official into fraudulently changing election laws. It is punishable by, I think, one to three years in jail. Uh, But Willis is also now said to be investigating a broader racketeering conspiracy here. Uh, and has hired a specialist in racketeering as part of her grand jury investigation that is going on right now. Racketeering, in this case, and in Georgia state law, is a state felony punishable by 20 years in jail in Georgia. This seems serious, and the conspiracy that they could be, that they seem to be looking at, could involve not only Donald Trump, but also uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who also made a call himself to the Georgia Secretary of State to uh, reportedly try to strong arm him into tossing absentee ballots in the state. Also, Rudy Giuliani, who pressed Georgia officials after the election while votes were being counted, also. Trump chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who personally flew down to Georgia while the state was conducting a post-election audit of absentee ballot signatures on envelopes in Cobb County. That is uh, sort of the suburbs outside of Atlanta that they could all be charged if this is seen as a conspiracy to change election results. They could all be charged in this conspiracy with felonies. And now, though this call itself was previously reported by the uh, Washington Post uh, some weeks ago, now the Wall Street Journal uh, on Wednesday night released the actual audio of this other call, the second call. This is not the call to uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger, but this is a call that Trump made to the lead Georgia investigator during uh, that post-election audit in Cobb County in the uh, Atlanta metro area and to encourage her, Francis Watkins? Watson. Francis Watson, to encourage her to, quote, find fraud 
both there and in neighboring Fulton County. So there is some irony here. In a newly revealed phone call, Georgia Public Media reports today, Donald Trump asked a Georgia law enforcement official to find evidence of fraud with absentee by mail ballots, the latest revelation in his unsuccessful attempt to overturn the state's election results. Whatever you can do, Francis, it would be it's a great thing, Trump said to Georgia Secretary of State Chief Investigator Francis Watson back in December before Christmas. He said, when the right answer comes out, you'll be praised. When the right answer comes out? The six-minute call was first reported by the Washington Post in January. It was released by the uh, Wall Street Journal Wednesday. It came in late December after Trump's, right after Trump's then-Chief of Staff Mark Meadows made a surprise visit to Cobb County. Personal visit. Where the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and Secretary of State's office were checking signatures on the absentee ballot envelopes against those signatures that they had on file. The then-president listed other southern states he won for some reason and told Watson that Georgia should be one of them as well. Trump also asked whether the audit would run through Christmas, noting that the upcoming Electoral College tally in Congress was on January 6th and was a very important date. The call was, as I said, about six minutes long and is certain to be part of Fonnie Willis's criminal probe now of the former president and his co-conspirator. So let's give it a listen. This is, by the way, this is real. I, I, you know, when I started to hear it, it sort of sounded like one of those satirical takeoffs that we might play on this show. This is real. This is the actual pre-Christmas call by then-President Donald Trump to the lead election investigator in Georgia in the middle of her post-election mail-in ballot signature audit. Ms. Watson, the president. Hello, Francis. How are you? Uh, hello, Mr. President. I am actually doing very well. Good. Well, you have a big fan in our, our great chief, right? Chief of staff, Mark. I did. I, I, I met him. I, um, I, it was a pleasure to meet him yesterday. Nah, he's great. He's a great, he was a great success. He was a great congressman. And then when you lead by 35 points, it's hard to get people out of there. But I tried very hard for two years and we got a piece. And he's done, he's done a fantastic job. I just wanted to thank you for everything. He told me you've been great. And you know, look, this country is counting on it because uh, it's very interesting. So I won Florida in a record number, Ohio in a record, Texas in a record. Alabama by 40, 40 points. And I won everything but Georgia. And, I, you know, and I won Georgia, I know that, by a lot. And the people know it. And, uh, you know, something happened. I mean, something bad happened. And I hope you join that, uh, that job because if you, uh, you know, I hope you're going back two years as opposed to just checking, you know, one against the other because that would just be sort of a, a, uh, a signature check that didn't mean anything. But if you go back two years, and if you can get to Fulton, you're going to find things that are going to be unbelievable, the, the dishonesty that, that we've heard from them. Right. You know, just good sources, really right. good sources. But Fulton, Fulton is the mother load, you know, as the expression goes, Fulton County. Right. And, uh, well, Mr. President. You don't want to say, you know. Right. Uh, I, you know, I, I appreciate your comments, and, and I, I, I can assure you that our team and the GBI that we're only interested right. in, in, in the truth and and finding right. you know, 
finding the information that's based on the facts. And, you know, we, we, we've been working um, 12, 16-hour days and, Great. you know, we're, we're working through it. And um, so I can assure you that. And um, I, I do appreciate you, Colin. I know that you're a very, very busy, very important uh, man. And, and I'm very honored that, that you called. And, you know, and quite... Quite, um, quite frankly, I, I, I'm shocked, and that, that you, you would take time to, to do that. But yeah. I am very appreciative. Now Mark asked me to do it. He, he thinks you're great, and you know, it's just you have the most important job in the country right now. Because if we win Georgia, first of all, if we win, you're going to have two wins. So you're not, they're not going to win right now. You know, they're down because the people of Georgia are so angry at what happened to me. They know I won, won by hundreds of thousands of votes. It wasn't close. And Alabama, you know, where they go, because I won uh, South Carolina in a record, Alabama in a record, Florida in a record. You know, I won Florida by six or 700,000 votes. It's never happened before with a Republican. And uh, with all the money they spent, you know, you heard all about these guys going down spending a fortune. And we won Texas by a record. Texas was run, won by the biggest, uh, biggest number ever. And, it, you know... It didn't, uh, it didn't and, and Ohio, of course, you know that, you know about that. That was one by nine points or something, and it's uh, all of it. Iowa, <laughs> I mean, and it, didn't, it never made sense. And, you know, they dropped ballots. They dropped all these ballots. Stacey Abrams, really, really terrible. I mean, just a terrible thing. And I will say this, it, if and when, hope, I mean, hopefully this will show, because if you go back two years or four years, you're going to see it's a totally different signature. But but hopefully, uh, you know, I will, when, when the right answer comes out, you'll be praised. I mean, I don't know why, you know, they, they've made it so hard. They, they will be praised. People will say, great, because that's what it's about, that ability to check and to, and to make it right, because everyone knows it's wrong. There's just no way. You know, they had people in Georgia, for instance, that won, and I was way ahead of them, and they won because of me. You know, I pulled them, they call it coattails, right? And we pulled them across, and they say, there's no way that I beat you by 15 points. You know, I've had that in, uh, we've had plenty of those calls, too. So, anyway, but whatever you can do, Francis, it would be, uh, it's a great thing. It's an important thing for the country. So important. You have no idea so important. Well, Mr. And I very much appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate your call, and I, I hope you and your family have a very healthy and, and happy Christmas. And um, and I, I certainly uh, appreciate you and, and everything that you've done. Well, and I appreciate it too, Francis. Do you think they'll be working after Christmas to keep it going fast? Because, you know, we have that date of the 6th, which is a very important date. Right, and, right. Uh, I, I, I know, I know you've got that coming up, and and I, I can assure you that that you know I, I'm, I'm going to be working, uh, and and we're going to be working, and it's um, good. I um, yeah, I, I appreciate it, and you know our our team's out there working. You know, we we got pandemic. Well, I hear, thank them. Yeah, we've got. And pandemic. I hear the uh, I hear the Georgia. It's not the FBI, what was it, the GBI, right? Right. Okay, but I hear, uh, I hear they're fantastic. And I hear I'm about 96% with them, so that's good, okay? <laughs> but say hello to those guys. Tell I, them I appreciate it very much. Let them all know. I will certainly and do that. You just take care. Call anytime you need. If you need help, call me. But but uh, Mark has the number. But uh, 
Mark appreciates it, but I wanted to call you and thank you. Well, th- th- thank you so much, and you have a good evening. Thanks, Francis. Take care. Right. Have a good Christmas and everything. So long. Thanks, Francis. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. <laughs> okay, goodbye already. She's so trying to get off the phone. She was so trying to get off the phone from the very beginning. Yeah, so uh, inappropriate. I, and by the way, he was saying uh, GBI, uh, 96%. He's talking about the Georgia Bureau of Investigations that 96% of them are in favor of Donald Trump, as if they did some sort of a survey of people who work for the Georgia Bureau of Investigations. So we're supposed to be nonpartisan. But she's trying to get off the phone from the very first comment saying, I know you're very busy, sir, so I'll let you go now because she's an investigator with the GBI. She knows that he is... It's totally inappropriate for him to be calling her in the middle of an investigation of an election in which he is one of the candidates. I mean, that is insane. I don't know how you hear that call as anything else other than trying to convince her somehow to change the results. I mean, what is it, a pep talk? Does he Is he doing her a favor? He's just, just calling hang to in thank there. her. All your long hours are greatly appreciated. If you need anything. Something bad happened, he wanted her to know. And wanted her to go back two or four years to compare envelope signatures now with four years ago because he guarantees they have changed because in that time, people came in and... Something. Something. And mostly in Fulton, of course, where all the black voters are. When you get the right answer, when the when you get the when the right answer comes out, you'll be praised. Whatever you can do, it's a great thing for the country. It's so important. And of course, you heard him talking about January 6th there. He was very concerned that this get wrapped up before January 6th the day that he would go on to incite the MAGA mob attack on the U.S. Capitol to try and stop the electoral count confirmation of Congress. And, you know, and he's even bragging to her about how many states he won. What was that about? Any idea? No, I just think he's a rambling person who has difficulty staying on any kind of subject. It was sad to have to hear it again. He wanted her to know how, look, we won everywhere else, so of course we won in Georgia. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Anyway, that is now officially, I'm sure, part of Fonnie Willis's investigation. She's the Fulton County District Attorney looking into not just uh, fraud, but uh, conspiracy, racketeering, violation of oath of office, and any involvement in violence or threats related to elections administration. Uh, And this could bring in Rudy Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, Mark Meadows, along with the president for, again, for racketeering, which has uh, something like a 20 year penalty in jail. We'll keep watching this one. Indeed. All right. Quick break. And we're back with the latest Green News report right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks.
I, I won. I won by hundreds of thousands of votes, Francis. He said. In Georgia. You know that, right? Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. I won hundreds of thousands of votes. Mm, unbelievable. Incredible. Uh, we're going to be talking about that Potentially criminal. <laughs> yes, I think so. We're going to be talking about that uh, in the days ahead. At least I hope so. Maybe he won't get off the hook for this one, but we will see. All right. Let's get to it now. Uh, again, it is a somber day, I hate to say. Uh, tried to lighten it up there a little bit with, you know, some Donald Trump criming. But now it's back to our latest Green News report. Yes, we believe that there are solutions to mitigate climate change. U.S. Senate confirms historic nomination of Michael Regan to head EPA. Biden's COVID relief bill is also sort of a climate bill. First major U.S. offshore wind farm clears key hurdle. Plus, when the plant was battered by tsunami, 160,000 residents were forced to flee radiation from its reactors. Ten years since triple disasters devastated Japan. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Please don't patronize me by telling me that the oil and gas industry doesn't have any special tax provisions. Ooh, Katie Porter, she mad at the oil man. Because if you would like that to be the rule, I would be happy to have Congress deliver. I yield back. Oh, snap. This is your... Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I can't believe that it has been 10 years since Fukushima. Yes, it's a somber anniversary. Thursday, March 11, marks 10 years since the triple disasters in Japan, the record 9.0 earthquake and deadly tsunami that caused a catastrophic nuclear meltdown of three reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. The legacy of the biggest nuclear accident since Chernobyl remains an ongoing concern for Japan. It halted its nuclear power program, and most of the nation's reactors remain offline today. And the disaster itself is still ongoing. The damaged reactors must still be cooled with seawater to prevent a new meltdown. That has generated more than a million tons of radioactive water that are stored on site in more than a thousand tanks at the facility with no long-term plan for disposal. Some radioactive water from the stricken plant is still leaking into groundwater that drains into the ocean. Officials say cleanup of the site will take decades. And yet there's some out there who think we ought to have more nuclear instead of less. Go figure. Here in the U.S., more positive news. On Wednesday, the United States Senate confirmed North Carolina's state environmental chief, Michael Regan, to head the Environmental Protection Agency with a bipartisan vote of 66 to 34. Regan is the first black man to lead the agency, and he will play a crucial role in President Joe Biden's efforts to confront the climate crisis and address environmental injustice. In his confirmation hearing in early February, Regan noted the rising costs and damages of extreme weather disasters intensified by man-made climate change on the nation's infrastructure and said that climate solutions will also create jobs. Yes, we believe that there are solutions to mitigate climate change. Yes, we believe that we can create jobs and safety while becoming more resilient 
And yes, we believe that we can create jobs on the mitigation side as well. The U.S. House gave final passage to President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, the American Rescue Plan, on Wednesday with zero Republican votes. The bill also contains some pretty big climate-related provisions. It appropriates more than $30 billion to help public transit agencies remain solvent, which will be key to reducing greenhouse gas emissions from transportation. And a measure appropriating $350 billion to state and local governments also allows states, cities, and counties to fund repair and upgrades to water, sewage, and stormwater systems and other infrastructure. Now, some may say that has nothing to do with COVID. Your response? Well, it puts people back to work doing important infrastructure repairs. At a time that a lot of people could use that work. In the Northeast, the regulatory agency in charge of managing the Delaware River and its tributaries voted late last week to permanently ban natural gas drilling and fracking within the entire four-state watershed, which supplies drinking water for more than 13 million people in Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, and New York. Wow. And in a first, the City Council of Petaluma in Northern California has moved to rein in new fossil fuel gas station infrastructure in city limits, voting unanimously to prohibit the creation, expansion, reconstruction, or relocation of gas stations, and encouraging gas station owners to instead begin converting their facilities to serve electric and hydrogen-powered vehicles. Wow. We may finally be looking at the end of gas stations? Finally, the Biden administration has jump-started the nation's first major offshore wind farm off the coast of Massachusetts. The Trump administration canceled the permitting process for the 800-megawatt vineyard wind project late last year. The Biden Interior Department has now completed an environmental review of the project, a key hurdle to final permitting. The U.S. has fallen far behind the European Union in offshore wind energy construction and jobs. The Vineyard Wind Project is a key step for the Biden administration, which has set a goal to double offshore wind capacity by 2030. Very nice. Jump on it for much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today. Check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. I think this is our biggest Van Halen day ever on the broadcast, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Thank you very much, Desi Doyle. Yep. Well done. And thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download all of them for free at bradblog.com. We remain on your public airwaves. Thanks only to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. To help us stay on your public airwaves, it is greatly appreciated, and it is um, a privilege and an honor, especially on a day like today. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. I will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Yeah.